Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 63 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Today we have three cases to cover. One of them is a forum non-convenience case before the Seventh Circuit. That may be our first one from the Seventh Circuit. We've done a bunch so. from the Illinois Appellate Court, uh, but this may be our first one from the Seventh Circuit. Probably not the last, though. As, as Perhaps. They're not as frequent in federal court. They're not. And one is on BIPA. Again, both topics we've covered on the podcast previously. Even the third, which involves the NCAA and questions of the APEX rule, which we'll get into, involves the NCAA, which we have covered in appellate cases from time to time on various topics, including uh, the Supreme Court case that was argued last term. Our first case today is Instituto Mexicano del Seguro versus Zimmer Biomed Holdings, Inc., a Seventh Circuit case involving federal courts and interesting questions of forum non-convenience. <laughs> Our second case today is Fisher versus HP Property Management, LLC, an interesting personal jurisdiction case involving BIPA out of the Illinois Appellate First District and involving a uh, question of a North Carolina company and a key uh, device that it sold to a, an Illinois company employer. And our third case today is out of Indiana, the NCAA case that we will uh, talk about. Turn to our first case today, Instituto, uh, forum non-convenience again. This time, as Pat mentioned, it's in federal court and not at, at the Illinois Appellate Court. So we've talked about frequently, especially in the southern districts and counties. Is a case of alleged corruption against a pharmaceutical manufacturer based in Warsaw, Indiana, properly transferred to Mexico? on the basis of forum non-convenience where the alleged corruption took place? Does it matter that the documents related to the alleged bribery were collected by the company in Indiana to respond to a separate DOJ request? What effect, if any, should it have that under Mexican law, it is unlikely that the parent corporation and its officers can be held liable or even uh, brought to testify or do anything down in Mexico? What effect, if any, should that the defendants have waived its objections to jurisdiction in Mexico. Those are among the questions that the Seventh Circuit will address when it decides Instituto Mexicano del Seguro versus Zimmer Biomed Holdings, Inc. that was recently argued. IMS, which is essentially the Mexican government equivalent of the Social Administration and Medicare rolled into one, brought an action against the Warsaw, Indiana-based drug maker Zimmer Biomet for alleged corruption in the marketing of drugs in Mexico. The district court transferred the case to Mexico under forum nonconvenience. And this involves the United States Convention Against the Corruption. United Nations. United Nations. What did I say? You said United States. <laughs> ah. United Nations Convention Against Corruption. Articles 35 and 53 in particular were cited in the argument and the entire convention is below. Article 35 states, each state party shall take such measures as may be necessary in accordance with principles of its domestic law to ensure that entities or persons who have suffered damage as a result of an act of corruption 
have the right to initiate legal proceedings against those responsible for that damage in order to obtain compensation. So does the United States violate its duties under the convention when it transfers a case under forum nonconvenience? This is another case where the defendant is moving to transfer case under forum from its home base because the witnesses and other materials are in another jurisdiction. In this case, many of the witnesses are in Mexico and not subject to process. And there's a language barrier between the witnesses and documents in an American court that would not exist in a Mexican court. The standard of review in federal court, like Illinois State Court, is abuse of discretion, so that might carry the day. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so th this is a very unusual case, but a very interesting one, because you have this situation where uh, they sue uh, Zimmer Biomet in its home jurisdiction. Uh, it seems that this case comes out of the um, Northern District of Indiana. It's uh, and, the district and the district court transferred it to Mexico. Uh, so this is a, a, a alleged, a, a very large scheme, uh, allegedly, of Zimmer Biomet uh, across the world, because there are references to uh, corruption in Brazil and one other country where they had allegedly bribed local officials to get people to buy whatever their whatever this the hip replacement uh, um, medical device was that they were that was at issue. Um, and so the question is, as Dan asked it, is 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 United is the United States required to provide a forum for the adjudication of these disputes? And so if we look at this section, Article Thirty Five, that Dan read, I think the key language is. Um, in accordance with principles of its domestic law. And plainly, forum nonconvenience is a principle of domestic law. But it, it it's so we, clearly um, the United States has the forum, what's called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which, yep. which seems to have been, and it has, I believe, both civil and criminal elements to it. Um, and it seems that there was at least some activity, perhaps civil, perhaps criminal, by the DOJ in investigating this. There were fines levied against the para organization, but these civil actions that they wanted to bring, uh, that the IMS, as it's called uh, in in Mexico, is kind of the abbreviation apparently that everybody uses. At least that's what their advocates said. Uh, are they allowed to? Um, are they required to bring their action here or can they or can they be forced rather to bring their action to Mexico when they chose to bring it at the home forum of the defendant? And this is one of those cases where the trans the case the, the, the court where you want to transfer it to is a place that is not nearly as favorable to the plaintiffs as would be the uh, jurisdiction that they sued in. In other words, they get a whole lot better shake in a, in a United States court right. than in a Mexican court, at least as the appellants tell it. They, the way they, they frame the issue is, is that if it goes to Mexico, and despite Zimmer Biomet having, having uh, um, consented to jurisdiction in Mexico, which they didn't have to do, uh, but it's very hard to say transfer the case to someplace, and oh, by the way, once you get there, you got to dismiss me. That's usually one of the conditions. In fact, it's in the statute, the Illinois statute on the issue, the Illinois rule on the issue. If you ask to transfer a case to another to another forum, you have to then agree to be subject to personal jurisdiction in that forum. And it says that if you don't agree, 
if you when you show up there, you then object to personal jurisdiction, you get sent back to Illinois. Right. So uh, you can't play that game. So they've consented to jurisdiction and some other concessions in order to say, we'll bring our witnesses down there. Be, and, and why are they want to be so accommodating? Well, because apparently under Mexican law, according to the appellant, you can't hold the parent corporation liable. In other words, the parent isn't liable for the actions of the agents, as would be the case in an American court, typically. Typically, the actions of the agent are imputed under a variety of agents, can be imputed, I should say, on a variety of theories, whether it's implied agency, express agency, ratification, a variety of different agency theories that can uh, get the principle for what the agent did. And they they used the, the technical legal term, bagmen, to describe the people who actually paid these bribes, who apparently are all Mexican nationals and now are out hanging uh, and been left out to dry by Zimmer. At least, again, this is as the 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 uh, uh, the how the appellant tells it. it. Says all we're going to be able to do is go after the bagmen, and who wants them? We want to go after Zimmer itself and after its sea uh, level officers for them because they had to have been involved in this and. If we go to Mexico, we're not going to be able to bring up all the other corruption we've been able to show based on their rules of evidence. If you recall the case where we against Hyatt, Doe versus Hyatt, where it was this Turkish prison or Turkish prison, Turkish hotel situation, right? And uh, and there was an alleged sexual assault there, and they said, well, you don't get to do discovery, you don't get to do depositions, they don't give very much recovery uh, there in in. Uh, in Turkey for a sexual assault, they're talking about like $2,500 when it would be a case like that in, in, in uh, America would be worth seven or eight figures. Um, so, you know, this is not this, this is not comparable. That didn't seem to really come up with the same kind of force no. in this argument that it came up in the Doe versus Hyatt case that we talked about, where they were talking about transferring the case to a foreign jurisdiction. And if you recall our episode discussing the outcome of that case, the court, uh, affirmed the denial of the transfer to uh, to Turkey, uh, in part based on that, because there wasn't an adequate recovery there. Uh, likewise, here, you have this claim by the plaintiffs that there's not an adequate recovery. I don't know how you prove up such a thing. There, apparently, I think there was a judge who had given an affidavit as to how things work there, because it's not yeah. like the Seventh Circuit has much information about how a Mexican federal court works, right. nor should they be expected to know such things. So they got to you got to kind of figure out what that is, and it it didn't seem to have the same kind of cachet. Now maybe it was because of the nature of the case, although one can certainly see that you know, sexual assault is obviously worse than bribery, but bribery isn't good. Right. Uh, and, and you don't want American corporations doing bribery, which is why we have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, and it's why you have a U.N. convention on this so that, you know, you can punish this kind of activity. So it it, it really is uh, quite the quite the issue and really gets the um, a place where the federal courts don't like to be. And that is involved in foreign relations. This is a place that is usually they don't want. Well, let's get out of this. You, you oftentimes have this at, at the Supreme Court. We talked about the Zabeda case, where it's really what you're really talking about here is foreign foreign relations. It's they've couched it in national security, but it's our ability to have relations with foreign governments. And if you right. if you disturb those, then you, you really make it very hard for us to you know, us for the government to do uh, to do business with other with other countries. 
So, uh, and by business, I mean have foreign relations between governments. So it's, it's a very interesting issue. Uh, and one that also tells us, I had a conversation with a colleague who has a case in federal court and they're talking about issues of forum non-convenience. It's like, is that really still a thing? Oh yeah, here it is. It's, it's alive and well. Uh, and, uh, it's, you know, it's the case that kind of crystallized the modern conception of it is a case called Gulf oil from uh, the uh, fr- from the United States Supreme Court. And you'll see it cited pretty frequently in Illinois courts as kind of like this is the beginning of the modern view of how forum nonconvenience work. It's certainly not the end of the story, but the beginning of the uh, of that story. So I, I think we've covered that one, Dan, unless you have some other things to add on it before we move on to our first break and come back uh, with a personal jurisdiction case. No, I, th- I think it covers it, Pat, and uh, I, I think, uh, as you note, the abuse of discretion might be the key here. So, it, it oftentimes is in the, in these. Uh, it, it's it's whether any reasonable judge would have done what the judge did in this case, and uh, maybe they got it right. So, with that, we'll take our first break and come back with our second case, Fisher versus HP Property Management. But as it turns out, HP Property Management is not an appell an appellant on this appeal. No. We're back for segment two of episode 63 of the Podium and Panel podcast in our second case, Fisher versus HP Property Management. And we've talked about uh, the Biometric Information Privacy Act uh, several times. We've talked about it in cases before the Seventh Circuit and in front of the Illinois Appellate Court and in front of the Illinois Supreme Court. And it comes up in a variety of contexts. In the federal court, we've looked at it primarily in standing, in uh, most recently in the McDonald versus uh, Symphony Bronzeville case, we looked at it and whether there is a, a defense to, under the Workers' Compensation Act, an exclusive remedy in that context. So we've looked at it in a variety of different ways. Now, here is an action against an employer, HP Property Management, who has no objection to personal jurisdiction. They're an Illinois corporation, it seems. So they can't really complain about personal jurisdiction. But they apparently also named the uh, Keeper, K-E-Y, capital P-E-R, Keeper, uh, very clever name uh, for a key yeah. box that is biometrically opened with a with a thumbprint, and the trial court denied the motion to transfer or strike that to dismiss them on a personal jurisdiction basis to North Carolina. And we ended up in one of these situations where there was some discussion whether they were talking about merits or not. And if you recall, this is this is a yep. similar question to the one we heard in the case regarding the recovery. Against uh, for for the for the ter- for the terrorism and the 156 million dollar judgment, and whether there was whether there was uh, uh, jurisdiction, and are we talking about merits or are we talk about jurisdiction? And that was kind of the problem during this argument. So the questions are: Is there personal jurisdiction in Illinois over a North Carolina manufacturer of a device that collects biometric data in Illinois and transmits it by some means? It's not clear in the complaint to that manufacturer pursuant to a service agreement that the plaintiff's employer had with this manufacturer? Does it matter that the plaintiff does not plead the elements of the contract or attach the terms and conditions referred to? Uh, Those are among the questions that will be addressed. The plaintiff filed a putative class action against his employer, Keeper, uh, Keeper's parents, Assay Alloy, Inc., alleging violations of BIPA. So this would be the collection storage type allegations 
that they stored and 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 kept this information without getting a, an authorization. Uh, the assay alloy was represented by the same firm that represented the defendants in Rosenbach versus Six Flags, which was the first Illinois Supreme Court case to rule in a BIPA case. Uh, they moved to dismiss for lack of personal jurisdiction of the trial court denied it. Assay alloy argued that the plaintiff failed to allege facts to keep to failed to allege facts that it reached into Illinois such that it could be expected to be hailed into court here. Uh, this, despite admitting that the device was delivered in Illinois and the biometric data for the key retrieval device was collected in Illinois, relying heavily on the rule against extra, extraterritorial application of BIPA and that the plaintiff's employer, not it, collected and transmitted the biometric data, the defendant asserted that insufficient facts had been alleged to lay personal jurisdiction over it as it stored the information outside of Illinois. In responding to the defendant's argument that the plaintiff did not amend their complaint to allege more facts, Justice Hyman said, you usually don't amend your complaint when you win. Dan, tell us more about the oral argument. Sure. Thanks, Pat. And uh, you, you mentioned Justice Hyman. Um, Active with, as always. He was with Paczynski and Coughlin. And uh, it, it was the Justice Michael Hyman questioning hour. Um, an although, interesting he wasn't as, although he wasn't as aggressive as he had been previously. I mean, he asked a lot, but he wasn't really banging on the advocates the way he has uh, in recent in recent uh, arguments. Somewhat, although, although he always, uh, uh, it's very clear from Justice Hyman, he's an excellent uh, appellate justice. He was an excellent uh, trial court Indeed. judge. But he... Uh, he, he probably more than anybody in the Illinois Appellate First District, you know where he's coming from. and Very bad. Play poker. Play poker with Mike Hyman. Right. <laughs> so, so it was interesting here uh, to begin with is the appellant uh, in this case. Uh, she asked for 10 minutes of rebuttal time, which in a 20-minute argument seemed high at the beginning. And she didn't have anything like that left. She had about three minutes left by the time she got done being questioned by Justice Hyman. Um, the uh, as Pat said, the the, the issue here um, and uh, the, the the terms and conditions. You can go out on Keeper's website. You can look at the terms and conditions. I, I linked to them on my post. They're, you they're, did. They're they're they're, they're linked did. there. If you really if you really got an interest, there they are. They're they're pretty basic. I mean, I do a lot of. Uh, uh, software as a service types of uh, agreements and drafting. These are, these are pretty basic and, and they say, you know, like it, uh, uh, things will be done in accordance with data privacy laws, applicable data privacy laws. But there's, doesn't there's, it put the authorization or the requirement to get the authorization on HP, employer? not, not on keeper. It, it, it does. Um, but, it, but again, um, the, the 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 big question here, uh, really, and and what what Justice Hyman and, and and the rest of the panel was really trying to dive into on this case, was was the question again. Number one, there's no actual contract, so we don't know if there's an actual contract. Um, the appellant tried to argue, look, this thing, uh, you know, we don't know how it got to Illinois. And at one point, Justice Hyman said, uh, seriously, like it's it's only made in North Carolina. And she kept saying it's an HP device, and he kept saying no, it's this is a keeper device that's used by HP. Um, there's real questions of, I think, when you use your fingerprint. Uh, one of the things that's part of the terms and conditions, and and maybe part of the service agreement that wasn't attached, uh, we, we we didn't necessarily see the uh, service agreement, but 
one of the things that Keeper requires as part of the service, they send you this box that has the technology on it. And then you're required to use them as a host. And they're the ones that collect and uh, accumulate and keep all the data at some point. And at, at some point, Justice Hyman and Pachinski, I think, and Coughlin as well, were asking the advocates. They make it, the money on the service. They right? don't make the money on the device. Right. Just like your phone. They make right. the money on the service. And it, and the, the, the question, the position uh, of, of the appellee was uh, when you put that fingerprint on, that data is being uh, collected in Illinois, but it's immediately transmitted to North Carolina. And because Keeper's the host at all times, that transaction and that actual transmittal is taking place in Illinois. And and the appellant strongly argued against that fact that, no, it's not that, that case, right? Everything's done outside of, of Illinois. Uh as Pat said, we did talk about a case previously that had a New York uh, company that was collecting uh, data. Was clear, uh, that was Clearview. Clearview. And again, they, they did nothing in the state of Illinois with respect to the data. It was all scrubbed and, and anonymized and other things done out in New York. And so... Um, uh, in order the, to deal with this particular statute, and that may be their defense right. when they get back to, when they get to state court, but where, where they're at now. Right. Um, I happen to have come across the case. It's pending in front of Judge Mullen in, in the Chancery Division. Yeah. Uh, I happened to be in court one day when it was up. Um, and and part, part of the issue here, um, as Pat said, is that uh, some of these arguments get into the merits of the actual case, right? This is a motion to dismiss. And so it's, it's uh, you know, uh, Justice Hyman at times, again, asked, you know, is, aren't we getting into merits there if we're talking about actual, uh, the actual substance of the case? Collection, so, maintaining, right? these kinds right. of storing, those are all the things you can't do without authorization. And you're saying they stored it there. Well, you're, you're saying they didn't collect it there. Well, you, they didn't collect it. That's a defense to the merits. That's not a def That's more than a defense to jurisdiction. Right. The, uh, you know, the, the appellants, uh, 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 Really, uh, the, their, their argument here is is that the uh, allegations and the complaint were not uh, sufficiently uh, detailed, did not allege any of these things, and talk about the contract and talk a lot about a lot of things. As Pat read the the quote from Justice Hyman, uh, you know, why why would they? They won, right? They, they, the motion to dismiss was denied, and so why would you amend your, you know, sua sponte on your own? Say I'm going to come back and 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 amend my complaint to make it different. But you you won. Yeah, I'll say though when the first question out of the box from Justice Hyman to counsel for Appley was, "All right, where is it in the complaint?" Counsel says it's not in there. Where's it at? And she points to paragraphs 11 and 54. Three, yeah. And, and let's just say that when she read them, I, I wasn't very convinced. I wasn't either. That there was enough there. Now, do I think ultimately she probably can make it out? I think she probably can, but it didn't sound like they hit the mark yet. It, it, that's just what it sounded like. I haven't read the thing. It sounded like it too. And and I thought the it, same it, thing. And the fact that you got 11 and 53, there's 42 other paragraphs. And that only, only two paragraphs actually even addressed at all any anything about an actual contract or or anything. And, and But nothing was attached. It's a very, uh, yeah, I, I think they can get there. Um, the appellant yeah, I, claimed, yeah. claimed there's no way that even even if they were given leave that, that you know uh, uh, that, that 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 it, it couldn't be fixed. But but uh, um, 
you know, and and, and uh, there was also argument here. I mean, uh, uh, and I, I think uh, it's it's right. There was argument that the, the sufficiency of just having a website that's accessible to Illinois residents is enough. Having those terms and conditions, come on, if that were the case, everybody's subject to jurisdiction everywhere, right? That's we not might as well throw the game out. Do, that's not the law. We, you have we, to do more. Yeah, we, you've got to do more. You've got to. So we, there's been a series of cases about that in Illinois, in one variety or another, uh, and it's coming in, in a bunch of different contexts. A couple of them have come out of North Carolina, just like this one for some reason. What was the sale of a car where they reached into? Um, they reached into uh, Illinois to sell the car. They had communications about it, and that was found to be enough. And then you had the Zamora versus Lewis case, which was an Airbnb where the form non-convenience case I posted about this morning on LinkedIn. But the personal jurisdiction case where they had an initial communication about uh, renting a house in Maine, the court said, no, you can't get the, the, the hosts on Airbnb. You get Airbnb, right. but you can't get the hosts in Airbnb from Maine into Illinois based on a fire that occurred in Maine. That's not going to get it done. And then there was another case that dealt with a lawyer up in Toronto or Montreal who was doing immigration work and he had an Illinois license, but there's like, there's not, that's not enough to get personal jurisdiction here in Illinois because he didn't do anything in Illinois. Um, so there's, there's it, it, all those communications also were electronic. Right. Right. And there, there was also, uh, there was reference uh, during oral arguments to a recent Northern District of Illinois case, McGovern, and uh, uh, at the end. I couldn't find it. I looked for it. Yeah, I, I wasn't able to find it either. Uh, but apparently. But I don't feel so bad. <laughs> but, but apparently it, it, it has to do with some of this kind of remote, you know, another vendor being remote and uh, whether, you know, they, they entered Illinois or did anything. Uh, and we have talked. Pat about uh, BIPA and, and this fact that it can't be, uh, it, it can't go extraterritorially, right? Just because it, it's it's a statutory law for Illinois residents, just like California consumer privacy or any of these kind of statutory protections of privacy. If, if states were able from to- from the state law. Yeah. If state law were able to just go across borders and, and bring anybody into court because it's a violation, allegedly, you know, again, we- you, you throw the entire system have a of mess. civil civil uh, procedure on its head. So you, you can't. You, oh. that, that wouldn't work. Um, so an interesting right. argument, but I think we've Indeed. covered it, covered this one. Yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll talk about it more in prediction. Sure to go wrong because I think we. I have. An, I, I think I. I think I know what's going to happen, but we'll see. Yeah. All right. With that, we'll take our next break and come back with the NCAA. God, I wish I represented the NCAA because those are some busy lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> hey podium and podcast listeners if you want to get in touch with the show you can drop us a line at podium and panel podcast at gmail.com please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview you can also follow dan and i on linkedin as well as the podium and panel podcast page on linkedin we look forward to hearing from you We're back for segment three of episode 63 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're going to turn to the NCAA case in Indiana. Should Indiana adopt the apex deposition doctrine is the main question that took place. A transfer was granted in this case, so that's always an important topic in Indiana Supreme Court uh, cases. Or are the protections in trial rule 26 to preclude harassment and discovery sufficient? 
That is a substantive question posed to the Indiana Supreme Court in NCAA versus Finnerty. That was heard uh, last week. Plaintiffs in these consolidated cases claim head trauma, including CTE. As now, how do you of- diagnose in CTE from people that are at least one of whom still living? I'm not sure. Or were they? Or were they, or they all passed? Uh, I, I don't know that, but there there are there are some uh, some signs, just like with other things. I've asked my doctors about it, for example. Um, but in any way, uh, as a result of re- repetitive hits in college football, uh, the most recent plaintiff played more than a decade ago, and others longer than that. The plaintiff plaintiff seek the deposition of the head of the NCAA, Mark Emmert, the chief medical officer and another high-ranking official. In particular, the plaintiff seek Emmert's deposition based upon comments he has made about the moral obligation the NCAA has to student athletes, and as Pat notes on LinkedIn, he hates that term, in order to rebut the legal argument that the organization has made the, made that it owes no legal duty to the players. As to the doctor, the plaintiff won his deposition because he has made statements regarding the contribution to CTE from repetitive head trauma, with the NFL that contradict the opinions of the experts disclosed by the NCAA. In order for the apex doctrine to apply, the following generally must be shown. Number one, the witness lacks unique firsthand knowledge of the facts at issue. And two, other less intrusive means of discovery have not been exhausted. The issue here in the version of the doctrine the NCAA has sought to apply is for an affidavit from the defendant to shift the burden to the plaintiff to show why the discovery is necessary. Florida Supreme Court recently issued a rule adopting the doctrine. Pat, tell us what oral argument in this uh, Indiana Supreme Court case where transfer has been granted. So as I said at the end of the last segment, this is about the third time we've talked about the NCAA. We talked about them on episodes 17 and 20, if you want to go look back. And this was a, the first one was a dispute with Westwood One over broadcast, radio broadcasts of the NCAA tournament. The other was the antitrust case at the United States Supreme Court regard, with, uh, with the players and uh, naming naming rights or uh, or compensation, I should say, uh, for um, uh, certain uh, fees for uh, for uh, education. So let's start with the procedurals. You Dan talked about the the uh, Dan talked about the substantive issue. Let's start with the procedural issue. So this case, when it went to the appell- Indiana Appellate Court initially, they held that it did not have jurisdiction over the interlocutory appeal because. This grant or denial of a protective order is a is a interlocutory order, and in Illinois, I don't know how you would get this certified to the appellate court absent a, a three hundred eight certification. They under under Rule fourteen b one e of the Indiana Rules of Appellate Procedure. That's how you can get it granted. So what happened here was the NCAA objected uh, to them seeking these depositions. Uh, and sought application of the apex deposition doctrine, and a motion for protective order was denied in part. A request for interlocutory review was filed, but both the trial court and counsel for NCAA indicated they were previously unaware of the deemed denied rule for interlocutory order certification. It's in the rule. <laughs> uh, a, a second motion for certification was filed by the NCAA and was granted over plaintiff's objection as it was a successive it was successive in violation of the rule prohibiting such motions under trial rule 54, 53.4A. On appeal, the court dismissed the appeal as, as, lack, as it lacked uh, jurisdiction. So at oral argument the other day, counsel for Appellee didn't spend, I don't think, a minute. It didn't say a word about the jurisdictional issue. 
counsel for appellant obviously started with the jurisdictional issue. And he said, you know, rule 53.4A that prevents repetitive motions only deals with the trial rules, not the appellate rules. We can seek certification as often as we want. And there's you have jurisdiction. You have appellate jurisdiction. You should hear the case. All right. On to the substance. Procedure is interesting. As always, you need to know how you get yourself to the appellate court. So we cover it. But Let's move on to the, the the meat of the issue, which is the Apex Doctrine, which is where I think the court's going to get to. The Apex Doctrine comes from government and has been expanded into, into the private context. Four states so far have adopted it, and five have expressly rejected it. So it isn't very popular, shall we say. Right. Um, and the Supreme Court, the Florida Supreme Court adopted it by rule. when It, it, it got a case, and instead of ruling on the case, it issued an order or rule. And that rule says a current or former high-level government or corporate officer may seek an order preventing the officer from being subject to deposition. The motion, whether by a party or by the person to whom the deposition is or of whom the deposition is sought, must be accompanied by an affidavit or declaration of the officer explaining that the officer lacks unique personal knowledge of the issues being litigated. If the officer meets his burden of production or meets this burden of production, the court shall issue an order preventing the deposition unless the party seeking the deposition demonstrate that his demonstrates that his exhausted other discovery that such discovery is inadequate and that the officer has unique personal knowledge of discoverable information. And it goes on. So the burden to persuade the court that the officer is a high level for the purposes of the rule lies with the person or party opposing the deposition. So this leads us to okay, what is it? What what's so special about Emmer? So in 2015. Before a United States Senate committee, he said essentially that uh, they have a, quote, moral obligation to protect the players, as he says, student athletes. And now in this litigation, they're saying, no, 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 it's not our obligation. It's the school's job. The the member schools, they're supposed to do it. And so what the opposing, what the plaintiff comes back with is, hold it. Emmert is the first former university president. He was the president of WashU in St. Louis. The first university president to serve as president of the NCAA in the 115 years of the organization's history. I don't know how that's possible, but right. apparently that was the claim. And that put him in a unique position, he claimed, of knowing that the what the NCAA expected of these member institutions and with regards to what the duty was of the schools and what the duty was of the NCAA. So, okay, I don't see how some statements that are made for PR and political purposes form a legal duty. Legal duty is defined by the common law, perhaps by statute in a given circumstance, but it's certainly not defined by what some non-lawyer president of an organization says. That'll win you points in the court of public opinion, perhaps. But I will say that portions of Apelli's argument sounded like a closing argument, not like a legal argument as to whether they actually had a duty or not. The closer question, certainly, and I think the justices pointed to this, was this doctor. The doctor who had previously worked for the uh, the NFL on this issue, which is obviously a big issue for the and for the NFL as it is an issue for the NCAA, uh, he had essentially conceded the point that repetitive head trauma can cause uh, brain injury and cause CTE specifically. Uh, but apparently, the NCAA has experts who say that isn't the case. Um, I, I don't know why you need someone to tell you that getting beat in the head causes a problem. I, I don't. I don't need an MD to tell you that. That's not. You know that that may cause you a problem. Maybe not cause everybody a problem. Well, but but it cause some people a problem. Well, but as you know, you need those experts, and you need. You know, sure. I think that the reason for this is that right. He he said that, and like you said, the, the experts they've retained have, have said, "Nah, it's not a problem." 
we had that we had that uh, case with that young lady, right? That wrestled and you know, good sign of re- repeated head trauma. Remember, she went to the the uh, Six Flags. She wrote. Oh the, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Another case of you know the eggshell uh, skull. That was the Shepard Bazant case, Renner right. versus Shepard Bazant case. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, and I, I again, I think I said then, it's like, did you really need someone to tell? It was common sense. Don't ride the roller coasters. Don't jump around and listen to loud music if you have a, if you have a head trauma and she did she she had multiple previous and subsequent head trauma um so th- the question really is do you need a special doctrine to do this or can judges just do this on their own and figure it out yeah. uh, as i said five states have expressly said no um you know let judges do it uh, on a case by case basis, but the NCAA really doesn't want to produce these people because you could see how before a jury this would sound really bad. Whatever it said before the uh, before the Senate, if they can get it to a jury, it sounds very bad, even though it ha- shouldn't have any legal effect uh, because it's not a. Le- it's, it's he said first of all he said moral duty. He didn't say anything about legal duty, and that's not what defines the duty in the first instance. It, it, the law defines the duty. The courts define the duty. The contract might define the duty, but not what some person has to say decade or more after the fact. So what did you know and when did you know it is really what these cases seem to be about. Um, because we're talking about some one of these cases, the fellow played in like the 50s. What did they know and when did they know it? So anything else on uh, on this case, on Finnerty versus NCAA? I don't think so. Okay. An interesting case. Indeed, and in a, you know, again, the NCAA is a, a frequent flyer on the podcast. Yep. No decisions this week, so our record remains uh, seventy-eight, twelve, and seven. Maybe. Well, we uh, had a we, we we had a late one, but we'll cover it next week because I don't, you sent me a text. You sent me a text Saturday morning. And oh, maybe I okay. Maybe I, I don't remember things. It's been a long. It's been a long weekend. We'll uh, cover it next week because I'm not. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember it, uh, honestly. I'm not, I'm not seeing it right now. All right, very good. Unless I, unless so, I imagine it. <laughs> I, I think you I think you might have. Maybe. Uh, that tells you the sophisticated show prep we do. Uh, no, no, on- no it's, it, it, it could be I dreamt it or who, who the hell knows. But I, I could have <laughs> swore you sent me something and said we got something right. But we'll, we'll skip that because, yeah, we're... <laughs> if, we, if, if there's one, it's a phantom case right now. So we'll be back let's, to that. Let's go to our rule of the week. Yep. So uh, watch you. Watch or do you, you want to make predictions? Why? Should we make predictions? Oh, well, sure. First? Yeah, we need yeah. to make predictions. Sure to go wrong. Yes, yes, you're right. What do you, what do you so think the, on the first case? So the first case is. Uh, I think this is getting affirmed. I think that case is going to Mexico. I I think so too. Okay, um, and then Fisher. This is the personal jurisdiction case. I, I think they're going to send him back and tell him to replete. I think so too. And I think they're going to get it and done. not address the question, right? Yeah, not, I, not I, I think. I think they can get it done. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to move to dismiss, get it denied, come back, you know, do it again. But I, I think they can probably do it. I think um, so, too. At least get past a motion to dismiss. I think so, too. And then that brings us to the NCAA. I don't think Indiana's going to adopt the Apex rule. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. They're gonna. They're not gonna rule on the jurisdictional issue. They're gonna get past right. the jurisdictional issue. I think that's not a problem. I, I the in, Indiana court is is pretty friendly to defendants. It is. They may want to give some guidance. Maybe it doesn't take on the full on apex rule, but maybe it takes on some sort of guidance. It's hard to tell because they have a lot of options. 
they can they, they can adopt it without saying they've adopted it essentially right. um and, and they can leave it with the court because the court basically did the trial court basically did the analysis um so they may just said hey you know the court didn't abuse its discretion here it can you know it, it said you gotta you gotta produce the fella so I'll go with you I'll agree affirm yep. all right well that brings us with the rule of the week Dan why don't you cue that up Yep. Or tee that up while I queue up the uh, the audio we're going to play for the rule of the week. The rule of the week is uh, is how to do an effective rebuttal. Pat, we've talked and paid respects when rebuttals have been effective, and we've panned them when they have been terrible. Although it's very easy to armchair it, oral advocacy is not for the weak, and it, and it is uh, really takes a, a you know a talent to be able to effectively do it. In Brune last week. Uh, Paul Clements, a member of the often arguing at SCOTUS Club, was masterful. And why don't you tell us about the oral argument and rebuttal uh, that he uh, made in this case? So this is the gun case that we talked about on episode 61 uh, that we were previewing with David Siegel. Um, and the so this is the case about whether you can, whether it's may issue or shall issue for a concealed carry permit in New York and what the Second Amendment requires. So we're going to play uh, Clement's rebuttal, which was the argument went on for nearly two hours. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot there and we may you know cover it. But this is one of those decisions that it looks like it's not going to come out till June. It's one of those late term ones because of the controversy and everybody's going to write something. Right. Everyone's going to have something to say on this. So it's going to take a while to put together the opinion here and all the uh, all the dissents and concurrences and everything else. So it's going to be a while. Uh, but you should at least listen, listen to this rebuttal because, boy, does he nail it. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just a few quick points in rebuttal. First of all, I want to highlight that when the government was asked for its interest behind this permitting regime, it said that if it went to a different regime, it would multiply the number of firearms in circulation. In a country with the Second Amendment as a fundamental right, simply having more firearms cannot be a problem and can't be a government interest just to put a cap on another number of firearms. And that just underscores how completely non-tailored this law is. It might be well-tailored to keeping the number of handguns down, but it's not well-tailored to identifying people who pose a particular risk or anything else because it deprives a typical New Yorker of their right to carry for self-defense. Second point I want to make is just about population density. There's been a lot of discussion about that, but it's very much a double-edged sword because when there's a population density, that's an awful lot of people who all have Second Amendment rights. And so you can't just simply say we're not going to have Second Amendment rights in the areas where there's dense population. And I would say here experience does tell you a lot. By my count, seven of the 10 largest cities in America measured by population are in shall issue jurisdictions. And I've mentioned them, cities like Phoenix, Chicago, Houston. These are large cities where it hasn't been a problem. If you want to look at the empirical evidence, and I know, Justice Breyer, you asked about this, please also look at the English brief on the top side, because it's a very rigorous statistical analysis that shows that as a matter of actually doing statistics right, there's no difference here. And what the only difference you really see is that people who have a handgun for self-defense end up with a better outcome. I mean, they're not shot. They're, they're not made victims. But the English brief, I think, is really worth taking a look at. I want to say a quick word just about permitting. 
Um, there may be limiting permitting in other contexts like parade permitting, but I'm not aware of any context whatsoever where in order to get a permit, you have to show that you have a particularly good need to exercise your constitutional right. And I think that is the absolute central defect with New York's regime here. Um, I want to say a quick word about the history that my friend from the Solicitor General's office emphasized. Um, it's telling that his first example is Tennessee. If you look at the Heller decision, Tennessee is a problematic state in terms of its history. Uh, the court gave that Tennessee Supreme Court first came out with the IMET decision, which the majority opinion in Heller criticized. It then came out with the Simpson decision and the Andrews decision, both of which protected Second Amendment rights. And the majority opinion in Heller praised those decisions at the same time that it criticized AMET. So to the extent there was an 1821 statute, I would put it in the same box as the AMET decision. Texas, which is their next example, and their only other uh, 19th century example, if I heard my friend correctly, is even more problematic to rely on because Texas had a specific constitutional amendment that was similar to the English Bill of Rights but different from the Second Amendment that allowed the legislature to put specific restrictions on the right. So relying on 1871 Texas is highly problematic from a historical perspective, and that just leaves them with 20th century examples, which we can see, but by that point, the collective rights view of the Second Amendment was everywhere. Let me finish just by saying there's absolutely no need for a remand here. There are interesting statistics that could be developed, but none of them are relevant to the two central defects in this regime. First, that in order to exercise a constitutional right that New York is willing to concede extends outside the home, you have to show that you have an atypical need to exercise the right that distinguishes you from the general community. That describes a privilege. It does not describe a constitutional right. That is a sufficient basis to invalidate the law, but then there's the discretion. And the discretion here has real-world costs. If you want to look at it, look at the amicus brief in our support by the Bronx public defenders and other public defenders. The cost of this kind of discretion is that people are charged with violent crimes, even though they have no private, no prior record, just because they are trying to exercise their constitutional right to self-defense. And if you want to know how this impacts policing, one of the way essentially making everybody in New York City a presumptive person who is unlawfully carrying is that leads to stopping and frisking everybody. The framers, I think, had a different vision of the Fourth Amendment and the Second Amendment, and that is that individuals get to make their decision about whether or not they want to carry a firearm outside the home for self-defense. In 43 states, people are able to do that. It, has not, it doesn't mean everybody ends up carrying, and it doesn't mean that those 43 states have any more problems with violent crimes or anything else than the six or seven jurisdictions that don't honor the text, the history of the Second Amendment, and Heller. Thank you, Your Honor. So what the power of that argument was, is it, it was he hit each one of the points that were really effective for the respondents, in particular on the history. I mean, the, the, the two big points that they made on history were the Tennessee 1821 law and the, and the 1871 law from Texas. And that really seemed to make headway. If you listen to it, uh, the respondents' argument, they really, uh, that seemed to be pretty persuasive. And he comes back in two sentences and knocks each one of them out. 
They just don't, they don't do what you need to do. And then you get into the 20th century and you've got the collective view of the right. And that's not how the right's conceived after Heller. So you're wrong. Uh, and so, so it was a really effective argument. Now, uh, he also points to their very, there were tons of amici here. He go and effectively referred to the amici to, and he's touching and, and you look at the last part where he's talking about the Bronx public defenders and the stop and frisk. Who do you think he was talking to there? Was he talking to Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh referencing what the Bronx public defenders had to say? Really? No. I think he might have been talking to Justice Sotomayor. I think he might have been talking, in particular, who is from New York, and I think he might have been talking to Justice Kagan. Um, so very targeted. He's hitting He's hitting the historical. He's, he's talking to Justice Alito. He's talking to Justice Thomas when he gets to – when he talks about – the uh, the more uh, the more policy things he's talking directly to Justice Breyer he's talking to the more liberal justices he's talking to them all uh, addressing each of the points and it's a really really effective uh, rebuttal Dan what were your thoughts on the on the rebuttal I agree very effective rebuttal and uh, it it seems like the court is headed towards you know uh, invalidating the New York law and we'll we'll see what happens like you said in June. Right, we will. We will. It's uh, it's it, it. Certainly, the writing was on the wall for those kinds of uh, May issue permits uh, yep. when uh, with when Heller and McDonald, and certainly when McDonald came down. So yep. that kind of a, that kind of a regime was not long for the world uh, no. once those opinions were issued, and it was an indiv- found to be an individual right. So with that, uh, this is Pat for Dan. Thank you for joining us this week. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.